Well, good morning. We are starting a brand new sermon series today I'm excited about, but before we get to that, I would just like to acknowledge some very special people in our church today. This is uh, Memorial, or excuse me, Veterans Day weekend, and if you are one of our veterans here, I know our church is full of veterans and heroes, and if you are a veteran, would you stand so that we can cheer for you and applaud for you? On behalf of everybody at our church, I think they'd all agree with me and they would say thank you so much. Um, what you did for us is not lost on us and we appreciate so much of your sacrifice and, and, uh, uh, and all that you've done. So thank you, thank you so much. Um, I also wanna let you know something's kind of exciting that's happening here. Um, <coughs> tomorrow is uh, the Veterans Day celebration they have here in Bella Vista each year and they were planning to do it at the memorial. But because the weather is gonna be raining and cold tomorrow, they uh, reached out for us last week and asked if they could move it here. And uh, we're so happy to have that celebration here. So that is tomorrow. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, the music portion of it starts at 10.30. The, the program starts at 11. We'd love for all of you to come if you'd like to be here. The mayor will be here, Christy will be here. And we have a special guest coming, Governor Asa Hutchinson will be here tomorrow as well. So it'll be right here at New Life, so we want you to come be a part of that if you'd like to. It will also be uh, live streamed, not through our Facebook page, but through the Veterans page. And so we'll try to link up to it, so if you can't be here, you can watch it or go back and watch it. But that is tomorrow, and we're excited to have the governor here. It's not every day the governor of Arkansas drops in on your stuff. And so he, I hope he and I get a chance to visit. What would you like me to tell him? I'll take suggestions. No, anyway, be strong, that's right. All right, well, hey, uh, we're, like I said, we're starting a brand new series today, and I, I, like I said, I'm super excited about it. To kind of help us get into this new series, let me just tell you a few things uh, that you already know about me. You, you know I love sports, right? I've been pretty open with you about that. I played lots of sports, organized sports, um, all throughout my growing up years, and even some into college. You know how much I love the Kansas City Chiefs, don't you? Yeah, I know there's a lot of Chiefs family in here. And the Mahomes, I believe, is back today, right? So that's good. That is so good. I love NBA basketball. Now, I don't watch a lot of it during the season because I just don't have the time. But man, when the playoffs start, when NBA playoffs starts, man, I am glued. I love it. I just love the playoffs. I, 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 this may surprise you, though. Of all the sports that I've played in my life, um, I think... Um, I have logged more hours on a soccer field than any other sport. Because I started soccer when I was just little, little, before anything else. And so maybe you were like me. You started playing like in preschool. And you, you pl I played every single season all the way up through high school. I think except for one. And that's because our family was in the middle of a move and I wasn't able to play or something. But I've, I think I've logged more hours on a soccer field than any other sport in my life. Um, from seventh grade on, all I did was play goalie. Anybody, any goalies in here? Anybody play goalie? I love goalie. It was my favorite position. Not just because there's not as much running, although I did appreciate that <laughs> quite a bit. I love playing goalie. I just love that position. Uh, my senior year in high school, um, I was named captain of our soccer team, which is an awesome memory. But it's not the memory that stands out when I look back on that season. We had a very average team. We didn't break any records or anything. But this one memory that I have from my senior year in high school is that was the year 
that, that I experienced the, the hardest, most violent collision of my entire life. Here's how it went down. Um, we were playing this team, and one of their players got a breakaway on us. Now, in soccer, a breakaway is one of their players gets through your defense, and they stay onside, and they are charging for the goal, dribbling the ball. And so this breakaway, this guy's coming out at me as the goalie, and the only thing standing between him and a certain goal is myself. Now, as a goalie, um, you are constantly confronted with numerous split-second decisions throughout the course of a game. So in this particular case, when this guy is barreling down on the goal, I have a decision to make. I can either hang back in the goal box and try to stop whatever shot's coming, or I can charge at him and try to disrupt his angle of attack and hopefully block it or get in the way or whatever. So in this case, the decision I made in a split second, it all happened so fast, was charge. And so I took off, so do you get the picture? He's coming at me as fast as he can go. And I am charging out at him as fast as I can go. As we're running towards the ball, I notice, and like I said, this happened so fast, it's gonna take me 10 times longer to tell you this story than what actually happened. But as I'm charging out to him, I realized that the soccer ball had gotten just a little bit out in front of him, a little bit farther than what he probably would have wanted. And I'm thinking, I can beat him to the ball. And so as I'm running, I get there and I slide into the ball, a lot like a base runner in baseball sliding into second base. So I slide in and I get to the ball and it catches me right here. And that happened almost simultaneously as he got to the ball to take his shot. Since I got there just a split second first, when he shot the ball, he missed the ball completely. But do you know what he got instead? My head, lights out. He kicked me right across the side of the head, knocked me cold out, unconscious. Anybody ever been knocked out before? Is that not the craziest sensation in the world? Next thing I know is I'm laying on my back and I'm looking straight up at the night sky and what I see is half of my team and all of our coaching staff looking over me like this with that look on their face. Is he dead? I don't know if you've been there before. Obviously, my night was over, and they helped me off the field. Do you know that turkey? When I caught that ball and he knocked me out, I dropped it. He took the ball and scored a goal. Well, it's exactly what I would have done, but it doesn't matter. But it was, to this day, that was the most violent collision that I can ever remember having in all my playing of sports or all my life, really. You know, the dictionary defines this word collision like this. It is the act or instance of colliding. But it also means to clash. And it also holds this idea of coming into conflict. And I wonder, have you noticed that life is full of collisions? It is. I'm not just talking about on the soccer field, no, no, no. I'm talking about collisions in every way imaginable. I mean, even like collisions that are like so small you can't even see it, like microscopic molecules that are are boiling in water and all these little collisions that are happening all the way to galaxies billions of light years away that are colliding together. I mean, there are collisions everywhere around us and everywhere in between. You know, there, there's collisions that we see on, on, on sports fields. Like, we're going to watch the Chiefs play today, and they're going to go onto a collision with the other team at this epic battle to score touchdowns. But we see collisions in other ways, too, like 
like the couple experiencing divorce and they're fighting over the house and the cars and the kids. Turn on the news and you're gonna watch gangs locking horns over turf. Wasn't that just a tragedy, what happened in Mexico a few days ago? That entire family, they're alive now. If there's more details, I don't know, but, but what I heard was that it was a gang that was just establishing their turf. It's terrible. Collisions. People butting heads and clashing over politics and governing authorities. There's internal conflicts, both figuratively and literally, that tear people and countries and businesses apart. Protesters marching against the establishment, even Christians, Christians who are feuding with each other and they can't seem to just agree to disagree. Life is full of collisions, clashes, conflicts. Many of those are physical collisions, but you know what? The Bible tells us there are spiritual collisions that happens as well, stuff that we don't even see. In fact, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he says, for our struggle... It's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Clashes, collisions, conflict. We see physical ones. There are spiritual ones. Literally, they happen all the time, all around us. From the moment you hit your snooze alarm and climb out of bed in the morning until that moment when you crawl back into bed at night and go to sleep you have collided many times, hundreds of times, because collisions are inevitable. And you know, when I think about our Christian life, and when I think about all that's involved with walking with the Lord, and all that the Bible teaches us, especially what we've been learning the last eight weeks in the book of 1 Timothy about godliness and not falling head over heels for worldliness and, and all of those things, I, I am reminded that just about everywhere that we look Everywhere that we go and everything that we see, our faith is colliding, it's clashing with the world around us, and it's absolutely unavoidable. No matter how hard you try, it's impossible to avoid collisions as a Christian. You turn on the news and give it a couple of seconds and pop culture will remind us that uh, there is a conflict in beliefs with the world. From the TV that we watch, to the movies that we watch, to the music we listen to, to the halls of our schools and our workplaces and everywhere in between, there are collisions that there is a difference between what Christians believe and what the world believes. And these differences are, are obvious. We should not be shocked when people don't appreciate our beliefs and are hostile towards God. That should not shock us anymore. In fact, whether you believe it or not or see it or not, that there are people all around you every day that absolutely hate what you stand for. It's a collision. You know, what's been weighing heavily on my heart lately um, is that when our faith collides with the everyday world, which happens every single day, how do we come through these collisions without our faith being damaged. Not only just not to avoid damaging our faith, but how do we have these collisions with the world where we actually come through it better than before the collision? 
How do we do that? I came across this statistic not too long ago. I've seen it before, um, and probably you've heard similar things. But here's the statistic. That it's estimated that 70% of those who grow up attending church will drop out of church life and in some cases even forsake Christianity uh, entirely. That's a staggering statistic. 70%. Most people who abandon church and abandon faith, do you realize that most of the time that the largest percentage of people who do that, they do that between the age of 18 and 22. So if 70% of our kids who grow up in church walk away, then that tells me something. That tells me that they're not ready. Their faith wasn't strong enough to survive this full-on collision with the world. So from the moment they walk onto the college campus or university campus or clock in for that full-time job, they are bearing the blunt force trauma that comes from this collision with the world and what the world has to offer. And many of our young adults, they're just not surviving. That, their faith is not surviving the collision. And it's not just our young adults. Christians of all ages are constantly colliding with different ideas, temptation, entertainment. So how do we not just survive the collision, but rather thrive in our faith despite living in a world that holds such a different point of view than, than Christ followers do? And not just a different point of view, but are often quite antagonistic to our deeply held beliefs. This right here is what is at the heart of this series that we're starting today, where we're gonna go for the next few weeks together. We're gonna look at collisions, like when our faith collides with pop culture, when our faith collides with promiscuity, when our faith collides with politics, when our faith collides with all kinds of things that happen in our everyday lives. How do we not just survive the impact, but how do we thrive in our faith and actually reclaim lost territory that the world has claimed? How do we do that? I believe this is gonna be a very engaging series, so I wanna encourage you, stay with this series. Stay committed to it. I wanna encourage you too. Go out and invite your unchurched friends to come and be a part of it. I believe that God's got some things he wants all of us to hear when we think about this thing called collision. Well, what I wanna do today is I wanna help us have a biblical foundation for what we're gonna be talking about. If we don't start with a biblical foundation, I don't think there's anything else that's really gonna make sense that we're gonna talk about. So let's start with the biblical foundation for this whole idea of colliding. Now, if you wanna uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter two, that's where we're gonna start, but I wanna give you a heads up. We're gonna be bouncing through numerous passages of scripture today. You're welcome to follow along. It's gonna be on the screen. I've also had all of these printed out in your app so you can follow right along easily. There's multiple ways to do that, but I just want to give you a heads up. We're going to start in 1 Peter chapter 2. This is Peter talking to Christians, and in verse 9, he says this to them. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. I love this verse. I love the identity that he's giving us. He's helping us understand, this is who you are. Don't think you're something else. This is who you are in Christ Jesus. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. I could preach a four-part series just on those four descriptions. And I won't, but I could, and it's great. So this is what you are, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. 
Now, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you understand what Peter is saying here? He is speaking to the uniqueness of Christ's followers. He's talking about, you guys used to not be, but now you are. You used to be far away outside of God's mercy, but now you are inside God's mercy. You are different. You have a different identity. You stand apart from the worldliness that you see around you. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That's what Peter's saying. And then in verse 11, he says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. You might be looking at a translation that says aliens and strangers. We're all talking about the same words here. I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. This sounds very much like 1 Timothy, doesn't it? And then he says, which wage war against your soul. That sounds like a collision, doesn't it? Wages war. Live such good lives among the pagans or just non-Christians that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So I'll tell you, we could talk about a number of things in this passage, but I wanna focus on verse 11. Because the first thing he says, he goes, I want you to, to know that you are foreigners. Now that's an English word that we get from the Greek text. You go back to the Greek text, do you know what this idea of foreigner means? It literally means that you are a temporary guest. Don't you love Peter's language? As a follower of Jesus, as a, as a chosen people, you are a temporary guest in this world. That's how we're to understand it. We're not living for this place. This is not our permanent home, is it? Where's our permanent home? It's in heaven. So we are temporary guest here on earth. That's how Peter wanted the Christians to see themselves. I hope that's how you see yourself as well. So he says, you are a foreigner. And he says, you are an exile. Do you know what that word exile really is trying to communicate? It'd be like somebody saying, hey, you're not from around these parts, are you? That's what that word means. So you are temporary guest. You're not from around these parts. That's what Peter's trying to convey. You're something else. When I was in the fourth grade, our family moved from Lawton, Oklahoma to Portland, Oregon. Okay, so little bit of a jump. People in southwest Oklahoma um, are known to have a southern accent. Some people would call that a southern drawl. You know what I'm talking about, y'all, you know? Guess what people in Portland, Oregon do not have? They don't have accents or southern drawls or nothing. And so what I heard almost every day for our first year there is people would hear us talk and they would say things like this. Ah, you're not from around here, are you? There was something about the way we talked um, that made us kind of stand out from everyone else. My father, who was the preacher at this church out in, in Portland, that's where, where we moved out there. And it was just interesting to watch people react to him because he had spent most of his life in Oklahoma. And people would say constantly, where are you from? You're not from around here, are you? And, and, and that's the idea that Paul is trying to convey. You're a temporary guest. As a Christian, you're not from around these parts. And that's how we are to see our existence in this world. We're foreigners, we're exiles, we're these things. So we can't view our home with this world. It's, it's not that. You know, as I study scripture, 
what becomes very clear to me is that God's desire is for us, as his family, to stand out and be recognized as men and women of faith who don't fit in, we don't blend in, in any way, shape, or form look like the citizens that resemble the ways of this world. You know, Jesus had a conversation with his disciples one time in John chapter 15, and he talks about this very thing. In in verse 18, he says to his disciples, he said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, in other words, if you belong to the way the world behaves and acts and believes and all that worldliness, if you belong to that, it would love you as its own. You would be embraced and you'd be one of the gang. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Bottom line, Jesus is is preparing his disciples. Because you love me, because you followed me, You are guilty by association and people will not like you because it's so much different than where they are at. But it's supposed to be that way, Jesus is telling them. It's supposed to be exactly that way. And here's why. Because you don't belong to the world. You belong to the Lord. And that should be such an obvious difference. You are not on board with the majority. You are not a part of this worldly system. You're you're not a part of the way it thinks anymore. You're different. So our faith in Jesus, our faith alone, is incompatible with the way the world sees and thinks and views everything else. Now two chapters later, Jesus is gonna be with his disciples again. This is the night that he is betrayed and he prays for his disciples. This is what he prays. Pay very close attention to this prayer because it tells us something about collisions. It says in verse 14, he says, God, I have not given them your word and the world, God, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world." For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? What he's praying? Here we have our, our, our Lord acknowledging that our faith is not compatible with worldliness. But at the same time, he never intended us to avoid all of these collisions. He said, my prayer is not that you take them out My prayer is not that you pull them away to avoid interacting with the world. No, no, no. My prayer is that you protect them from the evil one who is in charge of all the worldliness that we're a part of. Do you see the picture so far? The Bible's painting for us. He's like, as followers of Jesus, you are foreigners. You are exiles. You're strangers. You're aliens. Your home is not the earth. You're a temporary guest. You're not from around these parts. We're living for something else. Our eternity is going to be somewhere else. Our citizenship is in heaven. So we're not a part of this worldly system. We have a different way of thinking. We're in the world, can't avoid it, but we're not to be all about what this world is about. You know, the Apostle Paul, he picks up on this exact same conversation in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And he's going to say very similar things. He just puts some different pictures to it. In in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, 
Paul says to the church, he says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Biel? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. I love Paul's use of imagery in this passage of Scripture. He, he uses this concept of a yoke. Do you know what a yoke is? Many of you know what a yoke is. We've talked about yokes before here on Sunday morning. A yoke is that wooden um, crossbeam. It's that piece of wood that is fastened over the necks of two animals, and that's attached to a plow or whatever, a cart, whatever it's pulling. What a yoke does is it keeps these animals together, moving at the same speed, pulling equal weight. It's a little simple device, but it's very effective. Now, for a yoke to work the right way, you have to yoke together two animals that are the same. Two oxes together, in this case, in the picture behind me. Two of the same kind. It's gonna make the, the load the same. They're gonna pull the same way. These two animals have the same nature. You would never yoke together an ox and a donkey, would you? You would never do that. Why? Because these two animals have completely different natures. They would not pull the same. It would not work out. And the command that Paul is giving us is a very simple one. Do not be yoked together with an unbeliever. The bigger picture that Paul is communicating is that a believer and an unbeliever have two completely different natures altogether, and it just doesn't work. You can't yoke them together because they're too different. You could also say, don't be yoked together with the ways of the world because godly values and worldly values, they're just too different. They're not gonna go together, it's not gonna work. So if you're trying to walk with God daily, passionately and publicly, you can't do it being yoked together with the world. You can't do it trying to walk in step with the world. It just doesn't work, something's gonna have to give. Now, if you look at the words that Paul uses in this passage, he uses words like fellowship, harmony, and agreements. Now, these words are speaking about things that have in common. Harmony, fellowship, uh, agreement. The reality is that a Christian who's trying to live out their faith, they don't have anything in common. They don't have agreements. They don't have fellowship with with worldliness. So that's why we get this list in this text. Like what does righteousness and wickedness have in common? Nothing. What does light and darkness have in common? Nothing. What does Christ and Biel have in common or Satan? Nothing. What does a believer and an unbeliever have in common? Nothing. What does the temple of God and idols have in common and what do they have harmony with? What are they in fellowship with? Absolutely nothing. How could you possibly bring these two opposites together. You can't. That's Paul's point. 
That's why the call here in this text is for Christians to come out and be separate, which is the foundation for this word holiness, to live holy lives, to be separate. So I hope that what you're clearly seeing from just these few passages of Scripture is that as followers of Jesus, we are distinctly different. We stand out. We stand apart from the ways of the world, the worldliness, the way the world thinks. And at the same time, by standing apart and not blending in, at the same time, God never intended to pluck his children out from the world, but to rather what? To live right in the world. So to be stand out, to be different, to be right down in the mix of it at the same time. So here lies the what? The collision, right? How do we do it? How in the world are we supposed to stand out and be distinctive, but living right in the heart of all the mess? Welcome to the collision. I recently read um, an interesting little book um, not too long ago by Dan and David Ackaby, or excuse me, Mike and Dan Ack, uh, Blackaby. They're brothers, fascinating little book. The, world, the book is called When Worlds Collide. Stepping out, stepping in, or excuse me, stepping up and stepping out in an anti-God culture. You know, they're talking in that book about similar things that has been on my heart and mind. And uh, I love what they said in their book. They said, you know, when Christians collide with the world, we try to live out our faith in an ungodly place. How do we do that? And they said, really Christians, and I say church, we have one of three choices, one of three responses to this collision. They say in the book, the first one is this. You, you can respond this way. If you're taking notes, this would be point number one on your app. He says, we can choose to be cave-ins if we want. That's one response. We can be a cave-in. By cave-in would simply mean that, that uh, as a Christian, you just simply blend in to the world around you. So you, you cave in to the way the world thinks. Now that may be somebody who says, I love the Lord, and they might even say, I go to church every Sunday and I do Christian things, but deep down in their heart, they're really no different than, than somebody who's not a Christian. They're somebody who is caved in. And right here is where a lot of the world has issues with Christians. Because in our attempt to blend in and cave in, they see hypocrisy. So here is one potential response Christians can have, is we can just cave in. Do you know Jesus talked about people who cave in? In a very famous passage of scripture, it's Matthew chapter five, verse 13. He says it like this. He says, you, he's talking to the family of God, you are the salt of the earth. But then he says, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. This is Jesus' way of saying, don't be a cave-in. What does salt do? Salt adds flavor. It adds distinctiveness. You know when something has salt and when it doesn't. Salt makes a change. And so Jesus is like, listen, you're the salt in this earth. But if you're not that, you're no different. I mean, you're no different in the world. And this would be this idea of caving in. There was this one survey by David Kinnaman in his book, Unchristian, and this survey revealed that 84% of the people they surveyed who said, I'm a non-Christian, I don't go to church, I don't have anything to do with the Lord. 84% of that group said they had a friend who was a Christian. But of that same group, do you know what they also found out? That 15%, only 15% 
of that 84% noticed anything different in their Christian friends' lives. That is crazy. In other words, the majority of those people said, I could care less about Jesus, but I've got Christian friends, but I don't see any difference between them and me. That, that is really sad. Have you guys ever watched the show Mythbusters? Remember when that was on? Yes. I've watched a number of those episodes. I always found them interesting. You know, it's, it's these few guys that they take popular myths and then they put them to the test to see if it's just a myth or if there's anything true to it. Well, they challenge this one myth, and maybe you've heard of it before, that if a tornado is barreling down on your house, the myth is open all the windows and all the doors and the tornado will just blow right through and your house will be saved. You've heard that myth, right? So on this particular episode, they said, hey, let's see if that's true or not. So they replicated this tornado and they opened all the windows and doors and to their surprise, they realized that it worked. The storm came right through and the house was left intact and from the outside, it looked pretty good. But then when they walked through the house, they stepped inside, they discovered that the house by opening all the windows and doors, it trashed the house on the inside. It completely messed it up and hollowed it out. So the outside looked the same, but the inside reflected devastating results from letting this raging storm in. I'll tell you, there is a real danger to the Christian life. When we open all the doors and windows of our life and we let worldliness in and say, you just come on in and I'm gonna cave in and we're gonna just all believe the same way. You know what? We may look the part on the outside, but on the inside, our faith, our convictions have been ravaged and we're a mess. We don't look any different than the world. That's a cave in. So obviously, we don't wanna be that, do we? That's not our response. Well, Blackaby, he offers a second response. Christians can become a cave dweller. This is number two. If you're not gonna be a cave dweller, just be, or cave in, just be a cave dweller. What in the world is a cave dweller? Well, it is the exact opposite of a cave in. This would be somebody, a Christian, who responds to the worldliness by like isolating themselves. We're gonna find a safe place and we're gonna hide from the world. We're gonna hide from all the anti-God voices that are coming at us. We're gonna separate and hide um, mentally and, um, and so we're just gonna dwell in our caves, our little Christian caves, and we're never going to come out. Maybe you're like me. I grew up in an era where there was a Christian subculture that was really coming to life. And uh, that Christian subculture is in full swing today. And if you know what I'm talking about, I'm just talking about this, that uh, nowadays we have Christian alternatives to just about everything. Okay, so we've got Christian music, we've got Christian books, we've got Christian movies, we've got Christian toys, we've got Christian candy. Did you know that? Go to any Christian bookstore and you can pick yourself up a, a package of Testa mints. It's good, it's breath mints. <laughs> you think I'm joking, I'm really not. It's out there, Testa mints. You got Christian clothing, we got Christian video games. We even have Christian comic books and if parents, if you've got young kids and you've not explored the incredible array of Christian comic books that are out there, I can point you in the right direction but there are some wonderful ways to introduce your young kids to, to the Bible through these Christian comics that reflects very much the same level of quality that these kids would see in the Marvel movies. It's awesome. But we can do Christian anything, Christian dance classes, Christian aerobics, Christian sports, 
We can work out at Christian gyms. We can hang out in Christian coffee shops. We can sing Christian songs. You can even do Christian mingle if you're single. Christian mingle, it's out there. It's like the Christian version of farmersonly.com, you know? The, song, the jingle doesn't work the same, but it's the Christian mingle. We have so many numerous ways that we can indulge ourselves in Christian culture. Man, you can even go to Chick-fil-A and eat Christian chicken if you want to. It's good. And I want you to know, for the record, I love all of it. I love all that stuff. I do. But if we really wanted to, we could stay within the walls of our Christian fortresses. We'd have everything that we'd need inside these Christian fortresses. I mean, we've got relationships. We've got social life. We've got a common language inside of our Christian fortresses. We've got our own entertainment inside these Christian fortresses. And you know what? There are so many things about being a cave dweller that is so appealing to me. It's like I'm gonna circle up with my kind and I'm going to hunker down until I die or until Jesus comes back. It's very appealing. There's one huge problem with being a cave dweller though is that God has called his people to make a difference in a sin filled world that is lost and is going to hell going back to what Jesus said in Matthew 5 about salt and losing its saltiness you know the very next thing he said the very next verse he says you speaking about us you are the light of the world a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So you know what? Cave dwelling is out. And so is cave, caving in is out. Those two things will keep you from becoming what God wants you to be, which is what? Number three, the Lord wants you to be a collider. What in the world is a collider? A collider is a Christian who understands that collisions with the world are completely unavoidable. They don't cave in, they don't isolate, but instead they seek out the very same thing that Jesus sought out when he walked the earth which is what? Luke chapter 19, verse 10 says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Colliders are people who completely understand the dangers of worldliness, but they're not afraid to live out their faith publicly and consistently holding on to the everyday hope that by doing that, we might win some and bring them with us to heaven. See, being a collider is not about being a Christian weirdo, not at all. It's about authentic Christianity. Colliders are those who understand that worship on Sundays prepares us for every collision on Mondays. You know, when I think about colliders, the name Brant Jean comes to mind. Brant Jean is the younger brother of a guy by the name of Botham Jean, the reason why I know these names is because last year, Botham was in his apartment when 
His door came open, and it was a uniformed police officer by the name of Amber Geiger, sees him in what she thought was her apartment. She draws her weapon. She sees Botham as a threat and an intruder in her house. And she shoots him and she kills him. Maybe you followed this story in the news. Everything that came out of the, at the trial, it just seems like it was just a terrible tragedy, no matter how you look at it. Can you imagine thinking that you're walking into your apartment but you're actually one floor off and you walk into somebody else's apartment thinking it's yours and you think that they're a threat and you kill them, only it was a huge mistake. It's tragic. Amber obviously lost her job as a police officer and at her trial last month, she was sentenced to 10 years in prison for that tragic mistake. At her sentencing, Brant, who was Botham's younger brother, he's 18 years old, he took the stand, and I'm gonna paraphrase what he said, but what he said nobody was expecting. He looks across the courtroom and he sees Amber, and he says to her, I want you to know, I completely forgive you, and I'm not gonna have any ill will towards you, and I am not gonna be angry with you. In fact, what I want more than anything else is I want you to turn your heart to God. I want you to have a relationship with Jesus Christ because he has forgiven me of so much and I know that he's the answer to all of this and he can forgive you. And millions of people watch this live, including myself, and our mouths hit the ground. And then what happened next? Nobody expected Botham looks at the judge and he says, would it be okay if I step down and I go give Amber a hug? And to everybody's surprise, the judge said yes. And off the stand he goes and there is this embrace in the middle of the courtroom and millions of people watched in disbelief. When I think about what a collider looks like, I think of him. Salt of the earth, city on a hill, seeker and saver of lost people. It's not about being a Christian weirdo. This is about living out your faith every single day, publicly and consistently, knowing that collisions with worldliness happen hundreds of times a day, but getting through those collisions with your faith intact, that's what a collider does. And not just intact, but thriving and making a difference. I'll end with this. There was a missionary by the name of C.T. Studd. What a name, huh? C.T. Studd. He said this. Some people want to live within the sound of a church or a chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. <laughs>